came to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 20 last week, and I suppose that I could have preached one last sermon from Philippians chapter 4, maybe picking up verse 22, all they... All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Just a reminder to us that God can rescue anyone from the very lowest to the very highest. And in this case, Paul, evidently writing from Rome, uh, we assume, uh, has, has even seen conversions among the people that are in the household of Caesar. Uh, they're, they're, they're in the highest levels of political power in a, an empire that is bent on destru- de- destroying um, this newfound faith, this Christian faith, and yet God has people in that household that are serving him, and we should take courage from that. And as I prayed about um, what, what God would have us to, to speak to you about and what new book of the Bible we would, we would preach through, um, I considered others, but I finally came to the conclusion that maybe we should just start on the very next book. We've, I've preached through Ephesians twice since I've been here, and uh, we just finished Philippians, so um, Ephesians, Philippians, and I thought, well, we might as well move on to Colossians. And as I read through it, I just felt like maybe it would be a helpful, I hope encouraging, um, book for us to, to read through um, and to study together. Colossians chapter 1, uh, this is the letter to the church at Colossae, uh, and this is one of... Um, two letters that Paul wrote to churches that he had never been to before. So when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, the the book of Romans, he had never been to the city of Rome yet. And the church at Colossae is about, I I believe, um, what I I recall is about 80 miles from, um, I think, from Ephesus. It's about 80 miles from Ephesus inland. And um, people point to Acts chapter 19, where when Paul is preaching in Ephesus, it says that, that the gospel flourished so much that all the people in Asia heard the gospel. And they, they point to that and say, see, right here in Colossae, uh, this is another church in Asia Minor, Turkey, that, that general area where uh, the church at Ephesus is. And God uh, uses the ministry of Paul to start this, this church. And so we're going to be studying this morning what Paul would have to say to the church at Colossae. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in the very first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringing forth fruit as it does also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. We'll stop there since we haven't finished his first sentence, but we'll stop right there because I don't want to just keep going. I probably won't even get through uh, the section that I've just read, but let's bow our heads together and let's uh, ask God to help us to understand his word. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would anoint the message. Would you open our hearts to hear what your word has to say? Lord, would you speak to us through these words and bring us encouragement? And most of all, Lord, that we would be transformed and, and made into new people through your word. 
and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, uh, an apostle writing to the church at Colossae, says he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus, which are at Colossae. But in the Greek, and I checked this just to make sure, uh, there's a symmetry to what he says because he says he's writing to uh, the faithful saints in Christ in Colossae. That's what he says. In Christ in Colossae. So if Paul were writing a, a letter to the church here in Chicago, he would say, I'm writing to uh, a letter. Uh, I'm gre- sending greetings to the faithful in Christ Jesus in Chicago. He's putting those two things together. Um, you all may remember me talking to you about how uh, the, the, the New Testament almost never refers to believers or followers of Jesus as Christians. Do you remember this? The Bible, the New Testament, they don't describe themselves as Christians. In fact, only two places in the New Testament is, uh, I'm sorry, three places is the word Christian used. Once, uh, I'm sorry, twice in the book of Acts. Um, The first place, it says that the believers in Antioch, um, the church that started in Antioch, that's the first place that they were referred to as Christians. That's the first place that we find it. Later on in the book of Acts, um, Paul is preaching a sermon to, uh, to one of the, the Roman um, judges, and I'm, I'm uh, torn back and forth between whether it was Felix or Agrippa. And when he gets to a certain point in his sermon and he makes his altar call, so to speak, uh, the ruler says to him, do you think with these few words you're going to convince me to be a Christian? And there's a slight sneer in the tone as if, uh, in, in our Bibles, when we read it, it says, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. But as I understand it, it's fairly clear that what he's actually saying is, do you really think that it's going to be that easy to talk me into being a Christian? And remember that Peter uses that phrase when he says, um, let no man, none of you suffer as an evildoer or as a, uh, a criminal, but if one suffers as a Christian... And I'm mentioning those three different examples just to point out that it seems like from the record and from historical records outside of the New Testament that the word Christian was considered a slur. It was given as a, uh, it's, it's kind of diminutive, and it, it means like a little Jesus person. That's kind of what the, what the phrase is intended to sound like. Maybe the best, uh, the best example from our world today is that there are some people that would be called holy rollers. All right, that might be a phrase you've heard before. Oh, they're a holy roller. And it, the, uh, the insinuation from that is that they just take their religion way too seriously. But the reason why the phrase Christian, to be a Christian, was considered so derogatory towards believers is because Jesus had been crucified as a Roman criminal. And uh, even more than today, back then in the Roman world, Jesus in his life, his death, uh, his manner of execution, he represented all the things that their culture would look down on. He was seen as a loser. And so those people who were Christians were the loser people. They were the people that followed the loser. Um, and so to call someone a Christian was to kind of in, to, to say, you're just a little loser, aren't you? It was a slur. Doesn't that change the way you think about it? But in spite of how it was considered a slur, the the New Testament church 
took it as a badge of honor, such an honor that they seldom would use it on themselves. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take such a great honor. Instead, others would call them Christians. And uh, to identify themselves in that way as if they were um, uh, rep Jesus, if uh, they were a little Christ, no, I'm just a follower of him. I'm not him. But there was a phrase that they used over and over and over again. As I said, the, the word Christians only used three times. But there is a phrase that's used over and over again to describe what it means to be a believer. And that phrase, a prepositional phrase, in Christ. It's used over 160 times in the New Testament. Do you think any phrase that's used 160 times uh, across the pages of the New Testament, do you think it might be an important one for us to understand? And do you think it might be something we actually need to recapture and 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 figure out what it really means. Some of you, maybe you remember when you first started coming to church or as you first started grasping what was being said, and there was phrases that were dropped or things that were, um, that were mentioned here and there that uh, you would walk away and kind of scratch your head and say, what is that that they're talking about? That's a weird word. It's not a word I use every day. And to say someone is in Christ if it's repeated over and over again in the New Testament, it's a strange enough thing to say. I wouldn't say that I was in much of anything else except I am in Chicago. Uh, so the phrase in Christ, what exactly does that capture? And why does Paul open his epistle to the church at Colossae with that phrase in Christ? We're going we're gonna to find out as we study this book um, that it leaves some unanswered questions because it's a letter and God in his wisdom did not choose to preserve the letter that the church at Colossae sent to Paul that led to this or, or any correspondence back and forth. So somebody compared this, reading the letters of Paul in the New Testament is a little bit like hearing one side of a telephone conversation. Have you ever been somewhere where maybe you're driving down the road and your spouse gets a phone call on their phone? Um, or you're sitting in the house and, and, and your, your wife gets a phone call and you can only hear her part of the conversation and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and uh, it, maybe you even completely misunderstand what she's actually affirming to them or saying to them because you can only hear one part and you get off and you say, what were you saying? And then she explains and it all makes sense. But because the New Testament only includes Paul's letters and not the letters that they sent to him, there's times where uh, Bible teachers like to play this little guessing game to try to figure out exactly what's going on at the church. That's the reason why these people are getting this kind of letter. So the church at Colossae receives this letter from Paul, and there are some that read into certain phrases and statements that are made that they assume that there's a, there's a mystery religion. Uh, a mixture of Judaism and Christianity and pagan religions that's kind of um, turned into this kind of uh, casserole, religious casserole that the church at Colossae is struggling with and has grown up and taken root in the church. And so Paul's writing a letter to correct them, to fix this. And then some people say, no, 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 it's not that. It's just a mystery pagan religion. Some people say, no, it's Judaism that they're struggling with. The fact is we don't really know, and I think speculating about what it is might be less than helpful. But we are going to get some clues here, and I think the first clue is, is found right here when Paul wants to begin the letter by letting the people know they are in Christ. And what we want to take from this is if, if we, if the letter written to us would say this, 
to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ who are in, in Chicago. The saints and faithful brothers, if you're a saint, if you're a believer, that means that you're in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? What this means is that our identity, who we are as people, has been swallowed up in the person of Jesus Christ. As I was reading to prepare for this, I'm reading a, an incredible book that I've just begun. And the title is Union with Christ, is the title of the book. It's not a, that might sound like a funny phrase, but it's not an academic book. It's, it's written in a, in a very easy to read style. And the person uses an illustration that, that grabbed me so much, I said to myself, I have to use that story for you all this morning, but I want to credit him with it. And this is what he says. Just imagine that you are uh, born in a family with a, a really difficult home life. Not just difficult, but parents that are abusive in every way, that leave you beaten down. Not only are your parents that are abusive, but you're in abject poverty. And uh, there's no potential for any change in your family. Not only are you abused in poverty, but, but your parents, perhaps they even use you to make money. Maybe they, maybe they uh, sell you on the street. Or maybe they force you to go out and beg on the streets. And deeply interwoven in your identity is, is your name. It's who you are. You're a Barnard. And Barnards are big losers. And you know that not only do you share a family name and a home place and a history, but woven into every cell of your body is that Barnard DNA that walks with you everywhere you go. Nature and nurture, habit and home life have all shaped and formed you until you know every step you take, every day you walk through life, you know and you're reminded again and again by those abusive parents that you're going to grow up to be a loser just like they are. But there comes a day where circumstances change because one day you're scrounging around the house and deep in a far forgotten corner of the attic, you find a trunk. Isn't this where stories start? You find a trunk and you lift the latch and you flip the lid and you begin perusing through papers that have been hidden away, squirreled away in this trunk. What do you find? Newspaper clippings and a birth certificate. Evidence that proves beyond any doubt that you're not a Barnard at all. That you were stolen. You were abducted. That you don't share blood ties with the terrible people claiming to be your parents. That they stole you away and, and that they don't even, you don't belong to them at all. Can you imagine in this moment, before any of your life circumstances have changed, just think with me for just a moment, that filling your head and your heart is the knowledge that whatever terrible things are happening to you right now and whatever questions you might have about how to get from where you are right now to what destiny awaits you, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is not where you belong. That the people claiming to be your parents are imposters. And that somewhere out there, as the records that you find indicate, your parents aren't just anybody's, but they're truly somebody. They're wealthy. And powerful. 
and longing for you to come back to live with them, for them to lavish on you all of their riches and goodness. And your life from that moment is going to be bent on trying to find your way back home. And what I want you to understand is that phrase, in Christ, is trying to capture just a little bit of that reality. Because that's what's true of all of us. We were stolen away from a God who loves us by our own will, but also by by the the brokenness of the world, and even in a sense by our birth, because the sin of Adam affects and infects all of us. But the reality of being in Christ means that just as Adam's sin spreads like a cancer and settles like a poisonous fog over our world, Jesus' glorious victory has rescued us from the wrath of God and from the sin that we are bound by. And Paul is telling these people that while they are in Colossae, they are also in Christ. That Jesus covers and surrounds them and that he is the reality in which they live. But as the book Union with Christ describes, there's a massive gap and too often we feel too much like the lost orphan in the attic perusing papers that mean nothing at all so long as we're still locked in that house that sometimes we live in a spiritual reality bounded by our physical circumstances, by the lack of the way the scripture has shaped our thinking. So we tell ourselves, but this is how I've always been and this is how I'll always be. Yes, I've asked Jesus to forgive me and I've asked Jesus into my heart on, on some level, but how to make the reality of what he did for me translate into what he wants to do in me. I haven't figured out how to make that work. And the way we make that work is by allowing our souls to settle into the truth that we are in Christ. Scripture gives us more than one metaphor so that we begin to understand through eyes of faith what this looks like. The author of the book Union with Christ goes on to to speak of how our imaginations in the world we live in today have become atrophied and and shriveled up, so to speak, through lack of use. Uh, We're like a person, uh, if you've ever had to wear a cast for a while, and when the cast finally came off, um, you look down at that arm and you're like, man, one arm is like way skinnier than the other one now, right? Because that arm was unused for so many weeks. And now there's a literal physical difference when you look at it. Our imaginations, because we, we're, we're materialists and raised in a materialist world where we, we think of uh, the real as what we can see, touch, feel, handle. And if we can't, if we can't see it in some way, if it doesn't have a physical reality, then it doesn't exist at all. Now, you and I, because we believe in God and we love God, I hope that's true of all of us that we believe in God, even if you're not sure where you're at on this journey to find God, what we know is that there is God. So what there is is this material world that I can see, touch, feel, taste, handle, and then there's the invisible God. But other than that, everything's pretty much hazy. And we don't talk about it much. We don't focus on it much. But the fact is God created us to be spiritual 
and physical both at the same time. And that we aren't just a physical body, just a material body. We're not just stuff. We're something more than just that. But our imaginations have become shriveled through lack of use. And so if we can't literally visualize something, then it's difficult for us to think of it much at all or to allow it to affect our lives. But when we think of the reality of being in Christ, God has given us tools and metaphors to help us to make it reality for us. Why do you think Paul, in his, in his epistle to the Ephesians, he describes our union with Christ, Christ and the church, and the way they are connected like a husband and a wife? It's, it's a deep reality of relationship. Now, we might live in an era that's pretty cynical about marriage and how long it really lasts. But there are two things we can say. First of all, that, that marriage, I would say marriage on average, is still the most durable human relationship that any of us experience. Um, and, and secondly, in spite of a culture that's very cynical about marriage and has recognized that it doesn't always last forever, for being that kind of culture, we're still really fixated on weddings and engagement pictures, and ways to get engaged. Um, whenever I'm scrolling through a social media feed, I'm going to stumble on some GIF or video of some guy finding an incredibly creative way to, to propose to his wife, uh, propose to his, his girlfriend. Uh, I saw one just the other day where uh, he's, he's got his girlfriend um, using the spotting scope on his decoy. He's got, or not decoy, on his, on his deer target. So he's got a deer target out there, and she's got the binoculars, and he pulls his bow back, and he, he lets go, lets fly the arrow, and when it hits the deer, the deer falls over backwards, and a sign pops up, will you marry me? And she just stands staring for a minute, long enough for him to get down on his knee and get the, the ring open, and when she turns, of course, she's jumping and screaming and all excited. He's found a creative way. Isn't it funny? That we think so cynically about marriage often in our culture, and yet people will go to those kind of lengths. I saw one where, where somebody had, had uh, I guess, um, arranged with a zookeeper to get one of the zoo animals to come out and hold up a sign, will you marry me? <laughs> so all kinds, of, all kinds of crazy creative ways that people go. Why is that? Because something deep in our hearts recognizes the, connect, the need for a connection to someone else. And God has given us marriage, not as an end in itself, but as an arrow that points us towards a greater reality. And when Paul begins to wax eloquent about what a husband and wife's relationship should look like, he says, but I speak of a mystery, Christ and the church. And he's telling us that that. There's a sense in which marriage at its very best looks just a little bit like Jesus' love for his church. That's us, those that know Christ, because we're in Christ, covered and protected by him, surrounded by him. Uh, not only does he describe it as, a, um, as a, a marriage, but Jesus describes this reality as a vine and branches, Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, 
then you'll ask what you will and it'll be given you. He, he goes on to say that, that you'll bring forth fruit. And he's, he's picturing that solid connection between a branch, a green leafy branch of a vineyard, of a, of a grapevine, and then that central vine. Uh, I've never grafted before, but you know you cut the branch in a very particular way and you cut the receiving branch in a particular way and then you stick it in that spot and then you, you uh, run the, the grafting tape around it. And if you come back in a day or two, or you know, I don't know how long a graft takes for it to connect solidly, when you come back to it, it's not as if you can just pull it back out and it's no big deal. It actually becomes a part of the vine. And the life that's in the vine, the sap and the water and the nutrients that are in the vine flow into the branch and create results. And with these two pictures, what the scripture is trying to help us to grasp is that being a Christian is not simply something that Jesus does inside of us. That being a follower of Jesus is not just some chemical reaction that like he drops us in the vat of Jesus juice and then it like changes us. But instead, it's a, it's a reality that we live inside of, that we've been transformed by. The author, and I, pardon me for using so many illustrations from this book, but I, I've just been so touched by it. And I thought maybe some of these will connect with you and help you think of your life in Christ and your spiritual life in a different way. And what he, he, he spoke of, he said that he was the smallest person on his football team. In fact, he said sometimes he was hard for them to spot. I don't know how small he was, but evidently he was very small. And he said that, um, that the coach would occasionally call a play where they would hand off the ball to him, the smallest guy, and then the biggest guy on the team would run ahead of him. So they'd be running together. He would be hidden behind the big guy who would just clear the field. And he was the little guy, and he was hidden in his friend, his big, powerful, uh, muscular friend. And here's, he's, he's a little guy, and he gets to make the touchdown. And the author c- connected that to us being in Christ. That when we're in Christ, when we're connected to him, his life flows into us. When we're, when we're part of that marital connection, then there's a sense of security and safety. And, and when, we're, when we're hiding in him, we recognize that whatever is thrown at us has to get through him first. And the, the reality of the atonement is that Jesus himself allowed the wrath of God for our sin to be poured on him. Isn't that incredible? Does that, does that kind of grab you a little bit? And does that help you to recognize the change, the difference that being in Jesus makes in your life? It helps us to understand why we describe the world as lost and why we describe us as saved and rescued. It's not simply about behavior patterns. Although to be in Christ means that his life His way of being is flowing into us and changing who we are. And the more that we allow that reality to grip us, the more it transforms us. That if this is, because the way that we think about what it means to be saved, what it means to, to be a believer, the way we think about it affects the way we live it out. Do you understand what I'm saying? That 
that if I think about being a Christian as simply, as only, as all it is, just being forgiveness, that Jesus forgave me and, and washed my heart, and now it's up to me to try to find a way to kind of live out the Jesus life if I possibly can, then what we've done is we've created a distance between what it means to be in Jesus and, and what it means to live a Christian life. But you see, there shouldn't be any distance between the work that's occurred in our hearts and the person of Jesus Christ becoming a part of our lives. That if we've truly been united with Christ, then we are being, right now, being transformed by him. What does this mean for me in my day-to-day life? It means when I wake up on Monday morning and I feel discouraged and I feel kind of useless and I feel like I'm headed for another day of disappointment, that I can roll on to Jesus and turn to him because he's close, he's right there. And, and he longs to give me what I need to take me through my day. And not in a, in a trite kind of vending machine way, but instead as if I'm a part of his body, because I am. So my fingers and toes and arms and legs don't need to beg my heart and lungs to give them what they need. My, my extremities don't have to, ha- have to plead with my brain to ask them what to do. There is an organic and immediate connection between the head and the body. And that's the the final metaphor that Paul uses for what it is to be in Christ. He said, he is our head. Now, I can get along without an arm or a leg if I have to, but I can't get along without my head. I have to be connected to that. And what it describes is, is the urgency, the immediacy, and the desperate need that we have for our connection with Christ. What does it look like to be in Christ? Well, think about what, what uh, Jesus says himself. He said, if I abide in you, how do I know that Jesus abides in me? Because I can hear deep within my heart, if I stop to listen, the witness of my own spirit to, to his spirit saying, I know that I'm a child of God. I've been changed. I've been transformed. I know this has happened. I don't know what it all means yet, but I know it's happened. And he says, and my words abide in you. What does this mean? It means that that witness of the Spirit deep in my heart has has led to an overwhelming desire to obey Jesus' words. It leads to a desire on my part to obey what he wants me to do. And as I do that, I find the life of Jesus is lived out in me. And fruit is the natural result. The fruit of the Christian life is not something that I have to strain and stretch to somehow achieve. Instead, it's just what happens when I'm in Christ. And, and as we study this book, I want that to be your controlling uh, metaphor, your framework. Um, has anybody ever read, you've read a novel, or you've read a book, and it took you halfway through the book to figure out what, where the story was going or what the book's point was? I've read books that I never did quite find out what the point was. I've read stories that I got most of the way through it, and I felt like I was meandering along with the author, and I thought, I wish he'd figured out what story he wanted to tell me before he wrote it. Well, I don't want us to do that in the book of Colossians. We'll begin right here at the beginning. 
to the saints in Colossae, in Christ Jesus. And do you see that Paul has left us with one final nugget right here from the second verse of the first chapter of Colossians? Here's what he wants us to see. To say the saints who are in Christ, in Colossae, he's helping them to recognize that as they look around and see the sights and sounds and smells of the city of Colossae, they are never tempted to go, is this city real? I mean, here's the thing. I know what I see. I know what I feel. I know what I can smell and touch. But I'm just wondering, is this city just like a figment of my imagination? Is it just something I'm thinking in my head? Nowadays, he would say, like we would say, is, is this city, is it just the product of a virtual reality? Or is the city real? Of course it's real. Colossi, physically speaking, Colossi is the air that they breathe. It's the world that they inhabit. And Paul wants to make sure that they understand that every bit as real as the city of Colossi is, that Jesus is just that real. That when you wake up in the morning and you are in Christ, that as real as the physical furniture in your bedroom, as real as the city that you live in, as real as the air that you breathe, as real as the blood that flows through your veins, just that real is the Jesus that saved us. He's not just some spiritual savior, but a literal, physical Jewish man at 33 years of age laid on a rough, wooden, real cross as hard metal nails Real nails were driven through his hands and his feet. And that cross was dropped into a real hole in the ground. And as real pain coursed through the nerve endings of his body. And he gave up his very real and physical life for us. Just that real, he rose again. And although we cannot see him, the real power that raised up Jesus from the dead is the power that's available to you and I this morning. And it's real. And we can live in that power. And that is why we never, ever say, well, failure, it's just the way I live. It's my personality. It's my parentage. It's my, it's my hormones. Or it's my DNA. No, 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 no. Because none of those things are the deepest reality in which we live. Because the greatest reality above all of those things is the reality that you are in Christ. And in Christ, all other realities take a back seat. So when we come to him with our failures and our foibles, we come to him for forgiveness and for transformation. If I'm in Christ, he can change me. My personality doesn't define me. My orientation and my identity don't define me. My, my nationality and my background don't define me. No, Jesus defines me. His forgiveness is real. And his life flows out in my life. And as this happens, the gap closes. The graft takes. The marriage is made genuine. The connection between head and body 
is closed because I am in Jesus. And if I'm in Jesus, that's all that matters. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the gift of your son and that each one of us can live in that reality, Lord. Um, Live surrounded and filled by the presence of Jesus. And we pray that as we leave here today, we would each one experience that in our own lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be providing more grace faithfully further proving his great love for me with grace for the moment all that I need grace for the moment and faith to The promises given to those who believe Grace for the moment All that I need The promises given to those who believe